And I, for one, as a Muslim, believe that the white man is intelligent enough. If he were made to realize how black people really feel and how fed up we are without that old compromising sweet talk. Stop sweet talking it. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how, what kind of hell you've been catching and let him know that if he's not ready to clean his house up, if he's not ready to clean his house up, he shouldn't have a house. It should catch on fire and burn down. Those are the final words of a speech Malcolm X made after unwarranted police violence broke out in front of a Nation of Islam mosque in L.A., resulting in the murder of Ronald Stokes. Welcome, dear listeners, to part two of our final episode on Arlington. Yo, Dre, I got something to say. Before we get into it, just a brief editor's note. This episode may include some repetition from our earlier conversations on Seth, but I decided not to edit it down, as that would require a lot more work to go back to old episodes and parse out exactly what was said. Maybe it's silly of me to be worried about that, given that the whole idea was to bring them up again with specifically new topics in mind and see how they fit together with the old. I'm just cognizant of not wanting to waste anybody's time. Hopefully, the fresh conversation is entertaining and thought-provoking enough that I'm just unnecessarily concerned. With that, on with our show. So one of the things that I brought up specifically as a result of editing our previous conversation in regards to those final chapters of Arlington was... Mm -hmm. Thoughts about the supposition that Seth is responding to Thomas in some way as a father figure to rebel against or to stand up to or to supplant even. He uses the word supplant in the story as well, but it's not an uncommon story theme in terms of like, say, Oedipus complex and everything like that and the metaphor inherent in the next generation making the previous generation irrelevant because of new ideas or removing bad ideas or whatever it is. That was something that I came up with by myself and put in as an editorial insert. So now I wanted to get some feedback from you, Toby, on what you thought about that idea. Okay, so funny story, when I saw this part of your notes in the document you sent me, there was a while, and it's longer than I care to admit, where I was making notes in response to this, where I had read it the wrong way round and thought you were suggesting that Thomas was viewing Seth as a father ah. figure to supplant. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I don't know if I necessarily like agree and stuff. And then I had like, you know, a couple of paragraphs and then I read it again. I was like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> so basically the sum of that, if you're curious, is Seth in some way works as the dickhead father figure in that he's this 
big overbearing figure who mm. says, look at the mess you made, like, and all <laughs> of that. And he literally says the same thing that uh, James's father says. So James Penrose's father says, so there's that. And there's the whole get your work right or I'm essentially breaking your toys, which in this instance means I'm killing you or letting you go extinct. There are a few things, but it's not. it doesn't really go much further than that. But it is ironic, actually, that you bring up that tone of voice to it as well, because mm. instead what we're actually saying is, one, one could say, Seth is saying to Thomas is, look at the mess you made, boomer. But, <laughs> but no, it's not quite like well, that. Like to me, I think any of those instances of what he is saying to Thomas, which you could make as a stretch, as sort of like these are dickhead paternal figure akin mm -hmm. qualities to be sort of coming to your child and saying, is almost in that sort of way that the idea of supplanting the father is when you actually show more responsibility and mm -hmm. actual sort of parroting abilities than the previous generation that sort of okay boomer you don't understand the situation anymore this is what the situation is and so that kind of works with it but to get back to my notes i actually wrote in response to your real thing and not what i imagined it certainly feels like an underlying factor to the tone of their conversation seth is a new interjection he is a shifting of the course of human development that challenges the established infrastructure and the cemented way of doing things. He and his Wendigo may embody a primal nature and an older, perhaps even ancient way of existing that humanity once lived, but after so many centuries of civilization building to its final destination here, that way of doing things has become new again. Mm. And Seth is here to say, we are done doing things your way, now we're doing it our way. Whether or not Thomas specifically is that father that Seth wishes to pit himself and the Wendigo against and supplant, I'm not sure. It could be that all of humanity is that father figure in this conflict, and Thomas is just their representative at this precise moment. In fact, I think that Seth realising how unlike his peers Thomas is, is perhaps what saves them here. Thomas had a moment of compassion for Wendigo, and that revelation gets Seth's curiosity going. He is likely unconvinced by the rest of humanity, but Thomas, at least, is not quite enough like them to cement Seth's decision about them. So if Seth is wishing to supplant the sort mm. of older category of dominant sapient on this planet then essentially what you have is the rest of humanity and then thomas says they are children and mm -hmm. seth is saying then rein your children in mm. so there's two frontiers of like interacting with the father figure in this instance says the obsolete boomer that Seth is going, okay, you need to step down now because you are fucking this up and you are obsolete. And then you have the father figure who actually wants to 
do better with this. And Seth is saying, like, okay, one chance. Mm. You have one chance. Sorry, I just have many different conflicting ideas going on in my <laughs> head, and I'm trying to reorganize them into a way that allows me to present them in some kind of legible, understandable order. Just but, splurge them all out on the table. We'll pick them apart right here. Yeah. Well, so you use the word curiosity, but I feel like Seth's curiosity was definitely already peaked with mm. the addition of the second handbook. It's mm. it's what gave him enough interest in talking with Thomas specifically as a representative, because it's entirely possible that prior to like with the death of Rutherford B. Hayes and everything like that, it could be that his initial intent prior to reading the second handbook would be to like either find Thomas or find some other leader and properly kneecap them, and that would end the plague that is humanity or whatever. But Seth in some way recognizing that Thomas has characteristics that he can appreciate or the very least believes that he can have a conversation with him, is what sets up the initial encounter. But it is Thomas's compassion for Frederick that actually opens up the real opportunity for Seth to make the offer that he does. He says from the beginning, I am uncertain about how to handle this. I could kill you. I could not. And this conversation is the test to find out if you're even worth, if you are even worth, never mind if humanity is even worth a chance to be better. But it also feels like it ties a little bit into my second question that I had and ties even further into the the new thought that I had this morning that I wanted to pull this conversation into Having now watched Into Darkness, I have a clearer understanding of Khan, who Alex has said Seth was based on. And the idea of Khan being genetically superior or superior in whatever ways Khan believes. And the fact that back in the day that he was sent off, sent away from Earth, specifically because he also wanted to bring about a momentous change where the genetically superior would supplant the inferior humanity that was on Earth, and that his expression of that, not just in Into Darkness, but also in the original series and the follow-on from that, from the, from the old days, that their inherent betterness is what gave them the right to wash away the old. In some way, similar to, say, Magneto's assertion that mutant kind is better than the humanity that fears it. Here also, Seth talks about how he believes Wendigo are superior to humans. Therefore, I'm wondering, based on the idea that part of what Seth's motivation is based on might have been a past rejection by humanity or by a people that are similar to humanity or especially by his father that might color his response to Thomas as being the representative of humanity. 
I'm sorry, I just had this uh, moment of imagining that same scene, but like Seth keeps sort of slipping into just saying like, you must be better, Dad. Thomas, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> and he just like keeps awkwardly doing it. And it's like, like, we will not speak again, Dad. Thomas, Thomas fuck, <laughs> off, get me out of here. <laughs> yeah. He's the moody teenager. Like, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Um, it's the question of compassion for the Wendigo that I think is most pertinent to your question of how a potential past rejection by humanity or something similar fits into Seth's response to Thomas. If Seth has been rejected by humanity before, then seeing an instance of Thomas deciding to abide his son existing as a Wendigo will be of interest to him. He is, I think, seeing this man who has made a public declaration that you you have to reject the Wendigo to the extent of killing them by just, like, they are not to be coexisted with. That is mm -hmm. as definitive of rejection as you can get. And an instance of him not doing that, but, like, a confirmation that he did not wholly reject his son's right to live because he existed as a Wendigo is something that says to Seth, not that Thomas is someone that just doesn't reject the Wendigo, but that there is that seed there that could grow, maybe, or there's just enough there that shows that he is not someone who rejects with all his heart because that is what Seth is doing here. He's looking into Thomas's heart and finds it conflicted. And Seth is questioning why Thomas hasn't rejected humanity too. It's not just about a question of Seth exploring through Thomas, his feelings of being rejected by humanity or by some sort of paternal father figure. He is interrogating Thomas. And the principal question here is, look at ye works, ye mighty in despair. Basically, look at everything that you have been working towards improving and how humanity has kind of rejected your efforts but also mm. even before you had power humanity rejected you based purely on the color of your skin mm. and if seth has endured this kind of rejection and knows what thomas has endured in his life then he will want to know why thomas has reached the conclusions that he has this is why he is undecided when he approaches thomas because there is still enough about his character which is a mystery to Seth, or at least still of interest to him. What his response to Thomas is, is just this exploration of whether the two will reject one another. And by that I mean that Seth is here to evaluate Thomas, and if he decides to follow his decision to kill him, he is just rejecting him. If he mm. decides to allow him to live, that is not necessarily embracing him, but it is a 
he is essentially doing what Thomas did for his son, Frederick. He Mm. is, and that doesn't mean that he lets him die or anything like that. It's just, I'm going to open the the door and give you the opportunity. Like that only just occurred to me now that Seth essentially does exactly what Thomas did. That's the nature of their interaction. It's whether they will categorically reject the other because the proposal that, uh, or not even the proposal, the terms that Seth Mm, sets mm. is we will have these lands. That will be how it is. If you break the terms that I am establishing, then you are rejecting this and you are rejecting me as your like equal or superior or just what i am however thomas views him doesn't really matter it's just a case of this is what i am and if you go against this then you are dismissing what i am asserting to you once more I already enjoyed your immediate response to it because you're absolutely right that Seth is trying to understand why Thomas might have had a similar experience and yet the conclusion they came to was very different. Because this is the kind Mm. of thing that we see a lot of, not just in fiction, but in reality, about how two people can have similar experiences And yet the way that they process those experiences still leads them down divergent roads. I waffled back and forth on whether to include this next excerpt or not, since I don't particularly like Steven Seagal as a person or his politics. However, moments like these do make me think of the climax of Under Siege. And even if Seagal isn't a particularly good actor, Tommy Lee Jones is acting the shit out of his scenery-chewing antagonist character, meant to be a dark mirror to the hero, Casey Ryback. Do me a favor. Tell me something. You really think blowing up a bunch of innocent people is going to change anything? What made you flip like this? I got tired of coming up with last-minute desperate solutions to impossible problems created by other fucking people. All of your ridiculous, pitiful antics aren't going to change a thing. You and I, we're puppets in the same sick play. We serve the same master. And he's a lunatic and he's ungrateful. There's nothing we can do about it. You and I, were the same. Oh, no. No, 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 no. There's a difference, my man. You have faith. I don't. Sometimes, the difference between two characters can be the intermediary experiences in between trauma. Sometimes, even though the trauma is similar, it plays out in a different enough way that causes a variation in what they internalize. Sometimes it happens at a different point in their lives, and there can be a major variation there, and that a child would process something different than an adult. And sometimes, it all just comes down to the fact that no two individuals will have their brains wired in exactly the same way. What would Thomas have been like if he didn't have Sarah? Mm. Would he have ended up more like Seth? We don't know, because obviously Mm -hmm. he embraced Sarah into his life, and her influence on him definitely helped color the things that went forward from there. So, Mm. And Seth, for all we know, doesn't have 
a Sarah in his life. And maybe if he had some separate influence on him, then he would not have made the decision he did. He has Brayoth, but Brayoth doesn't seem to be a huge conversationalist. Um, <laughs> okay, but like, can we imagine that a scene of Seth doing a bit like, uh, God, what's that character in Frozen who talks with his aunt, uh, his deer, and he just does the voice of his deer for him? Where, <laughs> um, <laughs> like Seth, yeah, Seth so is doing Brayoth's voice, and it's just like, do you think you should really be killing everyone? Look, we, I decided this is what we were going to do. You just sit there and eat your senator. I assume you're talking about Kristoff. Because he's the, he's it. he's the one that had the um the reindeer that was pulling his sled and everything. Manticles yes. are better than people. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's an that's an interesting thing there. Um <laughs> head cannon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't convince me otherwise. But I really, really like the way you brought up the idea of Seth's final offer to Thomas being a reflection of Thomas giving room for his son to leave after they have left and to mm. go out into the world yeah. and continue yeah. on. Because it's not taking them on under your wing and offering shelter and protection and ensuring their survival. It's kind of leaving the door open enough. You can leave and the possibility is there for their survival. It occurs to me here that our conversation actually reveals details in regards to Thomas sparing his son that are not shown to the audience in this book. That technically makes our earlier conversation a micro-spoiler, but I decided to leave it unedited, because it makes the metaphor clearer, and since Thomas's actions have already been revealed in this novel... I figured it wouldn't be too harmful to leave in a few of those interstitial details. So I've got two things left for you here, and one of them is relatively right. short, but... We'll see about that, Greg. Yeah, exactly. Fair <laughs> enough. Like, whether or not it's short by the time you're done, we'll see if it's short by the time I'm done. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking about the possibility of, like, if we look at humanity as being its own brain so to speak then keeping into account that you know freud has lots of problems with his own take on these things i was suddenly picturing the idea of the representation of humanity being like the mass of people is representative of the id thomas is representative of the ego and Sarah is representative of the superego. <laughs> you can't see it, but I was laughing in response to Toby's face, which was clearly saying, I know exactly where you're going, as I was laying out my Freudian analogy. I might also add that maybe the id needs a proper avatar, and I thought about who that would be. Unfortunately, there is no good choice among the cast, as most of our antagonists represent very specific characteristics that would leave others out in representing the id. This is likely why I initially referred to the id as being the faceless masses of DC. Of course. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't necessarily know that I have much more to say about that. Just, I just think the, it's enough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the 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 mental image of it felt particularly compelling. But to follow on from that, uh, I have a brief question: Have you seen the show that Lindsay Ellis did discussing narcissism in the MCU? particularly as it relates to uh, the Loki TV show. You might not have, since I, I don't think you've seen Loki, the Loki TV show, have you? You are correct. I haven't seen Loki TV show, and I haven't seen uh, that Lindsay Ellis production. Well, I thoroughly encourage you to see both, as well as another great companion piece produced by Aaron Moriarty and Seth Decker of Montresor Media called Loki Sucks Dick which I will continue to promote not only because they cover that series very thoroughly, especially from an LGBTQ angle, but also because it means I once more get to say, Loki sucks dick. But the reason that I wanted to bring that up is that I found it a particularly intriguing insight into the concept of the disorder which causes narcissism to be a significant enough character trait that it makes it difficult for you to interact with the rest of the world. And the way it specifically comes up in the MCU in terms of the way Loki is characterized, the way Thanos is characterized, and the way in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Ego is characterized. The different Mm. narcissistic aspects of them, and whether or not each of them is a true narcissist in terms of the actual qualities of the neurodivergent disorder that they need to overcome in order in order to function but also in order to not destroy the relationships that they develop that can't Mm. be healthy because of their fixation only on their own needs and everything like that you know i'm don't know if I've necessarily thought of this before, but of how narcissism is something that I've, you know, very much aware of, sharply aware of, in the sense mm-hmm. of just it as a toxic character quality mm. in attached to certain uh, public figures, and I've seen it as a negative human trait. Mm-hmm. Thinking of it as a sort of actual psychological disorder or condition or anything like that i've never really thought of the particularities of how that manifests Mm -hmm. so that would be interesting to and i do that i mean that alex i do say interesting because it is of interest to me Mm. to discover more of that something to follow up on yeah Mm. well and that means that as an aside i the thing that made me laugh a lot from the first half of the Candyman show I've listened to. I haven't listened to the second half because I will watch the Nia DaCosta joint before I uh, get into that. But Alex saying that when you say interesting five times, he jumps <laughs> behind you. Um, yes. <laughs> that, that, that was a great part. Yeah, absolutely. So One of my favorites. I will try not to say that another time because I think I might be have either used up my quota or be one away from it. Uh, I think that the normal rules apply less, but that's probably apply less to us. But that's because we offer regular sacrifices of explanations 
to Alex. We just, just put explanations on the altar, you know. <laughs> exactly. Like like the, the children or whoever was leaving out candy for the for the man himself. Uh, <laughs> another word you were trying to avoid saying. What do we call Alex in this instance? Just the, the like the something man. The well, we, if we give him a name, then we have to avoid saying it five times. The new, <laughs> the, the critic, or no, wait a second. The critic is technically someone voiced it by uh, <laughs> yes, um. uh, someone voiced by John Lovitz. Um, <laughs> but anyway, this is a fun uh, thought. But uh, let me return us to yeah. where we were before I so rudely interrupted you. Carry on. Since you don't have as much context. This means mm -hmm. that you may not have as much to respond to my question, but... I'd be fascinated to hear it anyway. Well, the question I then have is, does Seth mm -hmm. have narcissistic disorder? Because he definitely would appear to have narcissistic qualities, and I can definitely see an explanation wherein a lot of the things that he says and a lot of the things that he does would make more sense if he was a narcissist. Because if he views the Wendigo as an extension of himself, which is very easy to do when they don't talk back, then it would explain the reason why he prefers them to humans. Mm. And if he sees Thomas as an aspect of himself, or at the very least, that there are parts of Thomas that Seth recognizes and so therefore potentially praises because in doing so he is praising himself, so to speak. On top of that, the way he is able to dismiss humanity is the same way that he is able to dismiss anything that isn't actually important to him specifically. That's why he throws off questions because the only thing that matters is not really an exchange of ideas, but like, what can he get out of this that is important mm -hmm. only towards assuaging his own survival, but also his own psyche? Hmm. That's a fascinating question. And as I sort of look into this more, you know, once I've seen the Loki show, once I've seen this video and maybe just familiarize myself with some material a bit more yeah. i may have more to add to this and fortunately we do have more opportunities to talk about seth in the future mm. so my response to it is as you say honestly because i don't have the sort of reference points i can't break seth down and assess like which categories he falls into because i don't really know the mm. categories uh, yeah at least not well enough without whatever guesses i have to offer now being just kind of random darts thrown at the board something i'm sort of wondering about is other characters in fictional media that i would associate with being capital n narcissists a character that comes to mind is one of the lesser parts of this trilogy was uh, Smaug in the Hobbit trilogy, and, and I think it's not necessarily a narcissist, but this other term, which is for someone who views themselves as like essentially 
the only real thing in the universe. Like solipsist. Yes, I think that might be it. That mm. they are like the epitome. They are the beginning and end point of the reason of existence. And if they die, then that is the equivalent of the world dying from their mm. perspective. Mm. And I don't know if I feel confident enough in my understanding of either terminology of solipsism or narcissism to conflate the two. I like I feel sort of cautious with that. But I think there is nevertheless some narcissistic characteristics to what Smaug does in how he is presented in the solution of Smaug. Yeah. In that he is this just everything about the way that he moves and carries himself is defined by like his status of himself, his self-professed status and what others say of him, what others fear about him. With Seth, something that he is saying about the way that the Wendigo, the existence of the Wendigo is that he is saying to Annie and to others that this is kind of like the better way of being. He is emphasizing this sort of like the breakdown of self or the breakdown of identity, like complicated identity, that the existence of the Wendigo is better because all you have to think about is hunt, move, like all of that. It's what Hucker actually is tapping into when he is occupying the different creatures of the forest. Like mm, he mm. taps into that mindset as well. And that is what Seth is claiming that like Annie will only have to think about that when he offers her this existence. What you're saying about Seth turning humans into Wendigo, mm. you're getting rid of all of the bad stuff. The, the qualities that he doesn't like, mm-hmm. turning them into something pure. There's another place that we've heard that conversation before. It's very specifically in that piece of media that we keep coming back to, whether we intend to or not, in regards to New Century, which is aliens. Mm-hmm. Specifically, the conversation where Ash is talking about how he admires the purity of the xenomorphs. The scene I'm referring to actually comes from the first movie by Ridley Scott, when Ripley and the remaining crew are questioning the android Ash about the xenomorph. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it? I admire its purity. Survival. Unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. That said, the idea of the xenomorph being in some ways better than humans is one that is revisited in the second movie, ironically by Ripley herself. In her own words, You know, Burke, I don't know which species is worse. You don't see them fucking each other over for a goddamn percentage. It's one of those weird things because on the one hand, like that kind of existence that he is espousing feels sort of like antithetical to what my surface level understanding of narcissism is, which is mm-hmm. this like a celebration and affirmation of the self above like mm. others or just 
like an individual's self. But at the same time, we've had conversations about is Seth akin to the Wendigo or not? It's still up in the air, like how much of the Wendigo's existence is akin to his own. But if we look at it another way, what if Seth isn't so much akin to the Wendigo, but is in fact akin to the alien queen? Yeah. She is the same thing as them, but she's also mm. the queen, which means that she is special. We don't get to see the alien queen's mm. thoughts and the way that she thinks may not maybe may so unlike human mm. thought that we wouldn't be able to compare the two. Mm. But we also know from her actions that the alien queen appears to be very intelligent. Mm. That's something that goes beyond the hive mentality and everything like that in terms of being able to figure out the elevator or being mm. able to get on board the ship to be mm. able to attack Ripley on board the Sulaco and everything like that. Mm. So there could very well be a better association between Seth and the Queen Mother, so to speak, mm. that makes all of these comparisons make sense. Mm. Whatever the case, Seth is like asserting that he knows like what is the true best course mm. above essentially everyone else in this world in that he is saying that this is the way of things. And if his plan were to be followed through, he would be the only person with that sort of higher degree. So mm -hmm. yeah. And maybe that Wendigo, is narcissism. Yeah. Right? All of the Wendigo would not, fight him on whatever mm. he decided. He would let them do whatever they wanted the rest of the time, mm. and as long as the window continued to show him fealty and everything mm. like that, he could continue to be a benevolent god. And that feels like it could fit in with the idea of the Wendigo are just an extension of me. They, yes. are, they are my will. Yeah, the, the more I think about it, the more I think that you might be on to something here. Mm. This will obviously not be the last time we talk about Seth. And in point of fact, the very next episode is going to include stuff we don't usually do. Spoilers. After the experience of diving deep on Arlington, the place where we meet two characters that will be very important in the books to come, I wanted a chance to sit down with Toby and have some discussions on Mr. White and Seth that are better informed as a result of having read all the way through the books published in 2021. If you're a new reader, it's best that you skip episode 30C, as it will just spoil events to come. But, if you are a long-term reader, then you can listen to parts of the next episode, depending on how far you've gotten. First up will be a discussion on Mr. White, which is informed by character development in Steamheart and Uncivil Outlaw. And then, a final look at Seth, for now based on significant plot in both Steamheart and Nightfall of the Wendigo. There will be reminders and breaks, so you can listen to part of our final episode without being spoiled on the rest. I look forward to further discussion on the villains of New Century, because as people might have noticed, true villains happen infrequently over the course of the series. And if they do show up, they are often resolved in the same story they are introduced, like Roach and Fisher. 
Of course, maybe I should not specifically say villain as much as recurring antagonist. But one way or another, it's going to be fodder for a lot of good conversations about what kinds of antagonists Alex prefers to include in his stories, and why. To fill out the rest of this episode, stay tuned at the end of the outro for some outtakes from this Skype session, which includes a little taste from Maureen Foley. You'll be hearing a lot more from her in the next couple of weeks, as we try take two at our side project of Through the Wind Door, Century Tales. But to close us out for today, another musical piece that incorporates both the darkness of life and also the hope and determination of one woman that refuses to give up. Until next time, this is the Indigo Girls with Prince of Darkness. My place is of the sun and this place is of the dark night. I do not feel the romance, I do not catch the spark. My place is of the sun and this place is of the dark night. I do not feel the romance, I do not catch the spark. tell you my place is of the sun and this place is of the dark I do not feel the romance I do not catch the spark Hope my greatest cause to grieve 
How do I technology? How do I technology? <laughs> I suck at technology. <laughs> and we start as we mean to go on. You're looking particularly good, sir. But your but your your baby your baby's smooth shaven again. You're what you weren't rocking that uh, that stubble. I mean there. that was. That was uh, there for, to symbolically like support the whole, you know, thesis uh, work and everything like that. So once that was submitted, I got rid of it, and like I didn't have any objections how it looked. It was like it looking a okay. It's just scratchy as like why barbed wire, why face like it's like. <laughs> uh, we had all conversation about that, as I recall. We did. I, I thought you, maybe you were trying to go for the for the. Uh... Maximus Decimus Meridius look there. Are you not entertained? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I think if I went for that, I would like. I, I've talked about this before that some people go like, "So is your full name Tobias?" And it's like, no, because uh, my uh, name w already had Jungius in it. If I was Tobias, it would just be like it would sound like I was doing the Maximus Decimus Meridius uh, like speech and just go like, "My name is Tobias Jungius." Like, <laughs> and like I, I won't do the rest of the uh, speech now because I am a husband. So like I don't want the rest of that speech to come true or anything like that. Um, so no, I mean now I'm like my name is uh, complicated enough uh, now that uh, it's got an extra part to it. But the problem is the second part doesn't have two syllables. It's Tobias Skills Jungius, so it breaks up the flow. Mm. So <laughs> what do you want me to like sort of? Add a cheeky like extra you in there, Skeelus, like Tobias Skeelus Youngus. Well, there we go. I like I know what my Roman like MC character is gonna be. Like original character, do not steal. Um, <laughs> Trademarked. Get to the point of it. 
at the skills estate, yes. Um, it is this uh, lonely estate. place out in, in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by woods. Heard a growl out there. It should be fine. Like there's <laughs> The a Wendigo followed shotgun. you. You know what? Let's like, share a story since I see this is recording and it's a good way to share uh, stuff. So... Um, my grandmother and my dad, when my dad was uh, still around, they like always struggled to get along. I I still love my grandmother Zuzu. Uh, she was very kind to me. Would often get me Toblerone as a Christmas present before any dementia kicked in, forgetting the fact that I was allergic to nuts. But we never said anything because, like, what are you going to do? You can tell your grandmother that you can't have this Toblerone. No, I would just be like. Thank you. Yep. Yep. And like, I just sort of like would be in the other room, just sort of breaking off triangles to give it to my brothers and be like, oh, yeah, it's really good. No, I. <laughs> but um, the other thing was that my dad and her would sort of kind of like butt heads every now and then. It it was fine. So there was always a funny memory we had where there was a moment when my grandmother was sort of renting out some like building that was sort of neighboring to hers to people and there was one day she got this uh like bill for energy stuff and it's like that's quite high you'll know where this is going but what that went towards was my uncle took a look at this who lives nearby who having had some experience himself with this sort of matter was like Okay, yeah, I see where this is going. Let me just get the extra set of keys. Goes in there. Sure enough, it's a weed farm. The guy was trying to uh, establish himself a little weed garden. So he just sort of, like, politely lets the guy know, like, don't worry, we're not going to, like, report you or anything like that, but we can't really... We're just, you know, try to get your stuff cleared out by the end of the month and whatnot. And all of that is tidied up, like, very sort of neatly and... My grandmother, who was always sort of appalled at like the idea that like, oh no, goodness me, uh, like what would the village say? And yes, she is in this sort of village just outside of Oxford. So just imagine the most Midsummer Murders-esque place that is where my grandmother is based. So she swore my uncle to secrecy. It's like, please don't tell anyone about it. It's like, it's fine. It's fine. He was on the phone and telling everybody about it like <laughs> within the hour, including my mm. dad. And when my dad and I found out about this, we found this really funny. But you know what we found funnier was that the next couple of visits that she was over, I would just put in some veiled references, thinly veiled references that she would never catch on to. But just like, so like, so how's the gardening uh, going, Zuzu? Like, how is your garden? I heard there was a lot of green like you've had this season. And she would answer completely honestly, but my dad would be on the other corner, barely containing himself, just as I was like, as I was saying all of this. And then a couple of years later, my mum is on like jury duty and it's all like a similar thing that she's been called in on. And she's telling us like a bit about it, but like nothing, no specifics, but just sort of the vague details. And at this point, Zuzu sort of shares like, well, I've never really told you about this and then proceeds to tell us all about it. And then we all had to sit there and go like, Oh wow, we we never knew this. Just gosh, that is you don't say. Oh, like shocked <laughs> um, Pikachu face. Shocked. shocked. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Get to the point of it.
So, in some of the various like streams that I've seen OSP do, uh, mm. Sarcastic Productions, um, I like things that they've animated as well, like from their streams, which would be like they were playing a game and it's just a collection of them hanging out and blue and I always forget if it's I think it's Cyan rather than Indigo, but uh, Blue's partner. Uh, yes, I'm pretty sure has, that's Cyan. Yeah. Yeah. Have a cat called Cleo, and yes. uh, whenever Cleo shows up, uh, Red just says, "Yes, the cameo." Um, and <laughs> when like Maureen was here, I basically was just like, "Yes, the cameo." Um, <laughs> well, I think I mentioned the other day, although you might not have seen it, that. Um... You recorded uh, the first uh, sit-down session, right? right? I did record the first uh, sit-down session. I mm. haven't um, started editing that yet because I think we're actually uh, the thing. Uh, next thing I'm going to work on is what we're recording today. No, in regards to this, doesn't show up usually with the regular shows, but often mm. when Alex and Sharon sit down to do quick reviews or after-school club, as they're now called, I always love it when there's an audible indie cameo and <laughs> since he's not that vocal you can usually tell he's there because you hear him moving around in the background yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. i recognize the sound all too well because of uh, <laughs> my brother's dog who i uh, i'm awful with uh, dog breeds i don't think that uh, my brother's dog is a specifically like a golden labrador he might be mm. but like he is of that ilk but uh his probably name is probably a Her mix then yeah yeah his name is hercules uh yeah. he is a good boy he is my mm. nephew and i love him yeah just like whenever we would be zooming or like anything like that i would just hear in the background that like sound of fur and doggy flesh just like whiffing around the room and all of that it's great it's it's a good noise you can probably collect those and make that asmr in some way just yeah. like there's something that you put on in the background and be like yeah yeah this is this is a good space to be in ultimately though if that actually happens then at some point you might just be like oh god the dog is so restless can't you just lay down and calm yeah you know what maybe if you like heard that enough like in a sort of one hour asmr thing of just sort of unceasing that i would be like okay something's wrong with that dog someone needs to help with that dog I mean, we have to save the spoilers talk of exactly where Seth's character goes. So no talking about the hot, steamy love affair between him and Haka. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. Woo. Uh, okay. So, two century crack ships. It's what we're here for. <laughs> I don't think that's even one I came up with when I was coming up with uh, shipping jokes and everything like that. I, I may need to revisit the list. These next few bits were during a bathroom break, and Toby was sneakily recording little messages for me, as we are sometimes wont to do. They aren't always good enough for prime time, but these in particular were gems.
You know, during these segments when Greg is away, I always try to think of something funny or something to say that's just kind of maybe something to be added. But I find it very difficult, and it does make me realize how much I really do rely on a partner to bounce off of and just have some sort of interaction with. Because doing this solo is hard, just like the unprompted thought does not come easily. See, I don't know if that sounded good or not. I have just a blank screen ahead of me. Was that profound? Was it pretentious as fuck? I don't know. There's no one else to get instant feedback on any of this with. Candyman. 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 Sandyman. Ha! You saw the audio spike and thought I had said it uh, enough times, didn't you? Well, think again. And yes, I did cower down. I see that mirror. Well, if uh, you hear a uh, splurge at one point where I'm going, you know that uh, I miscounted. Okay, so... Listeners, if you had a new century fighting game that was sort of like, well, here's my first question. What sort of fighting game would you like it to be? Because to me, my default favorite kind is always the sort of Marvel versus Capcom style, like 3v3 tag team sort of setup, because I always think those are like the most frenetic and like dynamic ones out there. They have just so much vibrancy and expressivity like creatively but they always get the character across so you know that's the sort i would go for but like maybe you want it to be a bit more like weighty and meaty like a injustice style game anyway greg's here and i'm gonna stop talking <laughs>